Chapter Three of Pollyanna of the Orange Blossoms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claire. Pollyanna of the Orange Blossoms by Harriet Lummis Smith. Chapter Three. Honeymoon Satellites. The big seaside resort where Jimmy and Pollyanna spent a memorable week had been Pollyanna's own choice. Though she had lived abroad so many years, she had seen very little of her own country, and she had a childlike curiosity regarding those meccas of the summer pleasure-seekers whose names are household words. Neither of the two young people was in a mood to be unduly critical, though Jimmy complained that, in making their selection, they had shown a lamentable lack of originality. They actually call that train we came down on the honeymoon special, and if I should happen to put my arm around you on the boardwalk, nobody would give us a second glance. It would just be taken for granted that brides and grooms are likely to behave that way. As a matter of fact, all but the most ardent lovers of their kind would have found the crowds of people a drawback to complete enjoyment. Jimmy said that the beaches at the bathing hour reminded him of sheets of sticky fly-paper in a country kitchen. But Pollyanna, who as a little girl loved folks, had never outgrown that early enthusiasm. The crowds upon the sand, the shrieking lines of bathers holding fast to the ropes, and the throngs that tramped the boardwalk until late into the night all contributed to a peculiar feeling of exhilaration that Jimmy did not altogether share. But they were quite in sympathy in their love for the ocean, sometimes so deeply blue that even the blue sky paled beside it, sometimes a sombre greenish-gray. And there was one wonderful day of storm when the breakers dashed over the piers and the waves rolled in almost to the veranda of the hotel, and Pollyanna and Jimmy, clad in raincoats, went for a long walk which was one continuous fight against the seventy-mile gale. They came back glowing and laughing, and their fellow guests scrutinized them thoughtfully, as if wondering when they were going to be old enough to know better. They both liked to rise early and go out upon the beach before the picnickers and bathers and people who must always be munching something had strewn it with papers and fragments of sandwiches and broken candy boxes. It had all been washed clean during the night, and the receding waves had left ripples in the sand. There was often a sprinkling of tiny shells, and sometimes they found a branch of seaweed or a stranded jellyfish, the latter looking, as Jimmy pointed out, like a gelatine pudding that had not been altogether a success. Out of all the day they loved these early hours best, before the racket of the boardwalk began, and the blaring of the bands drowned the seagull's plaintive cries. "'Seems as if the world had been made on purpose for us,' Pollyanna remarked on one such occasion, and Jimmy said, "'Well, it was, wasn't it?' in a very matter-of-fact way. Since Pollyanna had been made for him, and he for her, and there was no possible question about that, it did not seem to be asking too much of a beneficent creator to throw in a world for good measure. Of course they came into breakfast with prodigious appetites, and a glowing interest in everything, in striking contrast to the listless attitude of the people who had sat up late over bridge, and came yawning down to breakfast just in time to get into the dining-room before the doors were closed. It was on their second morning that Pollyanna called Jimmy's attention to a little group at a nearby table. "'Jimmy, aren't those the darlingest children? The oldest one, the girl, is such a little mother to the three boys. 
The real mother hasn't been down to breakfast either day. The hotel seems to have its full quota of children, Jimmy remarked. I'm positive I've heard fifty-seven varieties of howls. I'm sure these children don't howl, protested Pollyanna. They all seem so sweet and good-tempered. It was unfortunate that she should have directed Jimmy's attention to the group at that particular moment, for even as he looked, the girl, on whose motherliness Pollyanna had just commented, seized the boy sitting next to her by the collar and shook him violently. The boy promptly retaliated by sticking out his tongue. Jimmy chuckled teasingly, and then, as Pollyanna looked crestfallen, he attempted to restore her spirits by saying, "'Never mind, dear. I've no doubt it was deserved. Discipline must be maintained, as that fellow in Dickens was always remarking.' It happened that the flock of children rose from the table simultaneously with Jimmy and Pollyanna, and as they left the dining-room, Pollyanna found herself beside the oldest of the quartet. The girl glanced in her direction with a flicker of interest the most sophisticated are likely to show in one who is unmistakably a bride, and, as the eyes of the two met, Pollyanna smiled. There was something peculiarly inviting about Pollyanna's smile. It seemed distinctly an overture to a friendliness, and after a pause, apparently devoted to reflection, the girl smiled back. Pollyanna was quick to take advantage of the opening. "'I've been noticing you and your little brothers,' she said, "'and envying you a little, I'm afraid. I was an only child.' "'I just wish I was,' the girl replied. "'Oh!' Though the words had been spoken with great distinctness, Pollyanna was convinced that she had not heard correctly. "'I didn't quite understand you.' "'I said,' the girl repeated, raising her voice a little, "'I wish I was an only child. If you never had brothers,' she explained empathetically, "'you've no idea how perfectly horrid boys can be.' The boy who had received the shaking at breakfast was on ahead, but not so far that a sister's uplifted voice failed to reach him. He turned and contorted his features in a frightful grimace. "'There!' the girl exclaimed triumphantly. "'You see?' "'He seems very full of life,' Pollyanna suggested faintly. "'Oh, life!' the girl shrugged her shoulders. "'I should call it the old Nick.' She inspected Pollyanna carefully, and apparently with satisfactory results. "'Are you going to stay long?' "'Only a week.' "'I'm sorry. I like your looks. You see, my mother is quite a social favourite,' explained this astonishing child. "'And most of the time, when she's around, she's sleepy and doesn't want to be disturbed.' so I get lonesome for somebody to talk to. I don't mind telling you that the girls of my own age bore me stiff. Aware that Jimmy was waiting for her, Pollyanna acknowledged the confidence with a smile that was intended to terminate the interview. But as she turned away, the girl caught her by the arm. You can call me Gladys, if you like, she said, in the tone of one who confers a favour. Generally, I prefer to have strangers say, Miss Moore, but I kind of like your looks. While her brief conversation with Miss Gladys Moore had not altogether confirmed Pollyanna's original favourable impression, she was nevertheless oddly drawn to the girl. She realised that she was saddled with responsibilities that were too much for her, and did not really belong to her, and so cheated out of the universal right to a care-free childhood. Moreover, under her air of sophistication, and a somewhat patronising manner, Pollyanna detected a real longing for congenial companionship. She was hardly prepared, however, 
for the persistency with which Gladys manoeuvred to secure as much as possible of her society. When Pollyanna and Jimmy went to bathe, which was generally twice a day, for both enjoyed the water as heartily as if they had been a pair of porpoises, the four young moors were soon capering on the beach, arrayed in bathing suits. When Pollyanna tired of swimming and stretched herself on the sand to acquire the sunburn, which for some inexplicable reason is considered one of the pleasures of a stay at the seashore, Gladys took the same moment for her sunbathe. Whenever they went on the boardwalk, a procession of moors, with Gladys leading, trotted at their heels. If, at a late hour, they sought the deserted fishing pier, anticipating a quiet interval, with the moon and the water, the uplifted voice of Gladys was soon heard, warning Malcolm or Gregory against rashness, or reproving Norman, the youngest child, for failing to make proper use of his handkerchief. "'Look here,' the patient Jimmy protested at last. "'Your little friend is getting on my nerves. She's like a piece of adhesive plaster.' "'I'm sorry for her,' Pollyanna sighed. She's so lonely. Lonely? Well, she doesn't allow us to be lonely, that's sure. I've never heard of a honeymoon with so many satellites. She likes to talk with someone older than the boys. They're not company for her. She's rather old for her age. And no wonder, Pollyanna cried, waxing indignant, when she has to take her mother's place looking after those small boys. Oh, that woman! Honestly, Jimmy, I think lots of people who sound wicked, like embizzlers and murderers, you know, are really better than a mother who neglects her children. Woo! whistled Jimmy, honestly surprised. Pollyanna had, to a very large extent, retained her childish propensity for discovering the best in everybody, and so the severity of this verdict was the more unexpected. To Jimmy, Mrs. Moore seemed a vain and silly little woman, whose social interests absorbed an undue amount of her energies, but he would hardly have placed her in the criminal class. Mrs. Moore really looked young to be the mother of such a flock, and she made desperate efforts to look still younger by a liberal use of cosmetics and by counterfeiting an air of girlish vivacity. One of the pathetic things about Gladys, from Pollyanna's viewpoint, was her pride in her mother's social successes. She never seemed to resent her shirking of her maternal duties, though she was sufficiently clear-sighted regarding the shortcomings of her brothers. "'You feel so sorry about being an only child,' she remarked to Pollyanna one forenoon, as the two lay dripping on the sand, under the friendly rays of the June sun. "'Well, all I can say is I wish you could try Malcolm or Gregory for a week, and then, if you didn't thank your lucky stars. And I wish you could try a week of doing without them,' Pollyanna interposed, and then you'd be so lonely that you'd be more than glad to have them back. Not me. Gladys burrowed down into the warm sand as if it had been a blanket. Malcolm's got an awful mean disposition, but he don't hold a candle to Gregory. Honest, if I knew I never would see that aggravating kid again, I'd be thankful. Pollyanna was shocked, and spent considerable energy trying to make Gladys admit that she was only joking. Joke nothing! declared the outspoken sister. "'You see, you don't know. You've never had any experience with brothers.' They were still arguing the question when Malcolm made his appearance, and in their absorption they failed to notice that the little fellow was pale under his sunburn. Finding himself ignored, Malcolm roared his sister's name, and Gladys clapped her hand over her ears. "'For goodness' sake, do you think I'm deaf? What is it?' "'Gregory's drowned!' 
Pollyanna started up with a cry. Gladys dropped her hands. "'What did you say?' "'Gregory's drowned!' "'Don't you pay any attention to him,' Gladys warned Pollyanna. "'He's just trying to scare me.' "'I ain't neither. I tell you he's drowned!' Malcolm proved his sincerity by bursting into tears. Luckily, at that moment, Jimmy came along the beach looking for his wife, and he took it upon himself to extract the whole story from the frightened boy. Bit by bit, between his sobs, Malcolm told what he knew. He and Gregory had made up their minds to see how far out they could go, holding, of course, to the rope. But after a little, Malcolm had looked back and seen a sand artist at work. Forgetting the competition, he himself had suggested— he had splashed back to be rewarded by seeing a profile picture of Lincoln made in the sand. "'And then I looked round for Gregory, and he was drowned,' wailed Malcolm. "'Nonsense! He came in just as you did,' Jimmy declared. "'He couldn't have drowned without anybody's noticing him. We must find him, that's all.' But though they hunted energetically among the bathers and sightseers, who now covered the beach in such numbers that it was almost impossible to get about without stepping on some prostrate form— they found no trace of Gregory, and then Jimmy suggested that, as lunchtime was approaching, they had better dress and go back to the hotel. Mealtime is pretty sure to bring runaways home, declared Jimmy, who, in spite of his brave words, was beginning to look worried. But the hour for luncheon came and passed, and brought no Gregory. As Gladys was beside herself with nervousness and unwilling to let Pollyanna out of her sight, Jimmy superintended the midday meal of the other two boys and that duty dispatched, he returned to the beach and interviewed one of the lifeguards, a handsome young fellow who looked like a bronze statue come to life. After that brief talk, a pale, tight-lipped Jimmy called Pollyanna from Gladys's room to tell her that the thing was serious. "'Ask her where her mother is and find out her father's address. We can't shoulder the responsibility of this affair any longer.' Pollyanna's question secured very little information, Gladys had no idea where her mother could be found. She had gone off in a private automobile with several people whose names Gladys did not know, and had said as she left that she might be late and that Gladys was not to sit up for her. Gladys's father was in South America, and apparently there was no near relative who might be summoned in such a crisis. Though Pollyanna learned nothing of importance from her questions, Gladys did. She answered them one by one and then sat staring at Pollyanna with tragic, understanding eyes. "'Then it's true,' she whispered. "'Then he's drowned. I'm—' Her face was distorted by some torturing thought. "'I'm going to get my wish,' she panted. "'I said—I never—wanted—to see him again.' "'Oh, you poor child!' cried Pollyanna, and took the unhappy little sister to her heart. "'You said it, but you didn't mean it,' she faltered, trying hard to think of something comforting. "'And Gladys, dear, you can be glad that you didn't say it to him.' "'But I did,' Gladys moaned. "'I've said it a million times.' And even Pollyanna could find no comfort for this. The lifeguards and the police had all been notified of Gregory's disappearance, and they had shaken their heads when they learned he was in his bathing suit. Off the beaches a boy in a bathing suit would attract immediate attention. Jimmy found Gregory's clothing in a heap in the bathhouse he had occupied, and he carried the pathetic little pile back to the hotel, a big lump in his throat. Would that mother never come? At six o'clock Jimmy ordered dinner for two to be sent to Gladys's room, and again acted as guardian of the two small boys who, though sobered and subdued, were still ravenously hungry. 
Jimmy himself found it impossible to make much of a meal, because every time he took a mouthful someone came over to ask him a question about the missing boy. Finally he abandoned the attempt and was thankful when he could usher his charges out of the dining-room and leave them temporarily to their own devices. Too nervous to remain quiet, he paced back and forth in front of the hotel. The little he knew of Mrs. Moore had given him a contempt for her, yet he felt an obligation to prepare her for the crushing tidings she soon must hear. It was improbable that the woman was altogether heartless and her grief would inevitably be augmented by remorse. Jimmy racked his brains for an opening that would prepare her for bad news without telling her too much, but his desperate efforts only intensified his feeling of helplessness. Suddenly his attention was attracted by a grotesque figure approaching the hotel from the direction of the town. His first impression was that it was one of those cripples who make capital out of their deformity by appealing to the sympathies of the charitable. Then, all at once, he uttered a shout suggestive of an Apache war-whoop, and pounced upon a small boy wearing a man's coat which came to his heels. As Jimmy seized the diminutive figure and shook it, the ragged coat smelling of the cheapest grade of tobacco slipped off, revealing a wiry little body in a bathing suit. "'Stop that! You let me go!' whined Gregory, wriggling in Jimmy's grasp. "'I haven't done nothing to you!' "'Haven't you, though?' returned Jimmy grimly, recalling that one precious day, out of his all-too-brief week, had been given over to gloom on account of this youthful delinquent. "'Tell me quick where you've been before I take you over my knee.' Gregory capitulated to the accent of authority, and, aided by Jimmy's questions, told a straightforward story. He had followed Malcolm back to the beach after a breaker or two had gone over his head, and then, seeing Malcolm absorbed in watching the sand artist, Gregory had slipped away, intending to give his brother a chance to hunt for him. "'And almost right away I thought I saw him coming,' quavered Gregory, growing nervous under Jimmy's stern attention. "'and there was a truck, with nobody in it, standing on the road, "'and it had a lot of empty baskets in it, "'big ones, the kind potatoes come in sometimes. "'Go on, what are you stopping for?' "'So I got in, just so as to hide from Malcolm, "'and I pulled a basket over me upside down, "'just so he couldn't see me. "'And all at once that truck started. "'So you better believe I was scared. "'Why didn't you yell and tell them to let you off?' demanded Jimmy, still resentful as he thought of his spoiled day. "'I was a-goin' to,' replied Gregory, snivelling by now. "'But when I peeked out, there was a big black man driving, and he looked like a pirate or something, and I didn't dast let him know I was there.' Sometime later it appeared, when they had left the town quite a distance behind, Gregory had attempted to make his escape by dropping off the end of the moving truck, and had been discovered.' The driver had proved more humane than his piratical appearance indicated. He had explained to the stowaway that his wisest course was to accompany the truck and return when it did. As Gregory was now shivering, the negro had bestowed on him a disreputable old coat, and arrayed in this, Gregory climbed to the high seat beside the driver, and at noon shared the contents of his lunch pail. Now he was home, extremely dirty, extremely weary, and not a little frightened by Jimmy's menacing manner. Of course it fell to Pollyanna to break the news to Gladys, and she did it characteristically. "'Gladys, dear, I want you to think of the very gladdest thing that could possibly happen.' Gladys looked at her sharply and sat up. 
You don't mean that that kids showed up all right without being drowned or anything. Pollyanna was aghast. But Gladys, remember how sorry you felt when you thought, Oh, aren't you as glad as you can be to have another chance? Gladys drew a deep breath. That means... He isn't drowned, she said. Yes, I suppose I'm glad, but I'm so awful mad that I can't think of much beside. In spite of this not unnatural reaction from the tension of the day, Pollyanna was of the opinion that during the remainder of their stay she noticed a decided improvement in Gladys's attitude toward her brothers. She said as much to Jimmy, who listened sympathetically. "'Then I suppose we can consider our wedding trip a success,' he said, "'if it's enabled you to put the glad in Gladys.' Pollyanna did not notice. "'I think we may see quite a little of them.' In the winter they live rather near where we'll be. She turned inquiringly. Did you speak, dear? No, Jimmy said. I was only groaning. End of chapter 3 Recording by Claire